This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's happening, football fans? No, these aren't the dulcet tones of Max Rushton. It's me, the Hot Takes King, Southern Softy, Aston Villa-loving supporter, Jordan Jarrett-Brian, in the hot seat for one day only. England take on Spain in the quarterfinals and excitement ramps up. And I'm waiting for an Ed Sheeran and Adele collab anthem that the country can get behind. Northern Ireland sadly make the short trip home. Let's do some more chewing over the facts of what transfers are being mentioned, what most likely won't happen, just to annoy Barry. It's pre-season season, so who's looking in good shape and who's not and how much does that matter? Is it fair that players who aren't vaccinated have to stay at home? Oh, and if there's time, we'll touch on Max giving the internet a video your treat. We'll get through some of your questions too, and that's today's Football Weekly. Now, if this was a leadership contest for control of the Guardian Football Weekly, who would win? First up, Barry Glendening. Uh, morning, Barry. Are you the Rishi of this lineup, the clear favourite to take control? Um... I don't want to take control, so no. I'm also about two foot taller than Rishi. <laughs> this is also true. Um, good morning, Lucy. Are you the Penny Mordant, the outsider who actually could be victorious? I, I think I'm more like Liz Truss. I'm just like Margaret Thatcher this morning. <laughs> <laughs> No comment. Um, well, Nick, I was going to ask, are you the Liz Truss, the firm candidate who's also liked within the camp? I've got a slightly different hairstyle, and I I think I'm probably the, the um, Tom Tugan, that the, the little-known outsider whose hopes slip away the, the longer the pod goes on. <laughs> Not at all. We love you nevertheless. We love you nevertheless. Um, good morning, everybody. Hope you're keeping cool if you're in the UK. It's a scorcher. Um, let's kick off now. Rob Core has sent in a question. How will you resist giving scorching hot takes in the difficult chair? Perfect prominent asks, hot takes direct from the hot seat. Oh, yes. P.T. Warbitzer says, get stuck in, JJB. We'd love to hear at least one wild take from you. Uh, Callum, hottest day in the UK, hottest day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get to the hot takes later on for sure. Paul asks, open with, it's hot, isn't it, Barry? And you'll be fine. <laughs> it is hot, actually. Um, and I'd like to give a shout out to my mate, Gavin, who uh, is a crane driver by trade. So not only are we, we're all hot, but he's hot 150 meters oh, up in the mate. sky in a glass box. My sympathies. I've already had texts from him. He's sitting there in his pants, just 
pouring with sweat. Like David Blaine. <laughs> As I see you've got your, your, your blinds and your curtains shut, is that doing a good job of keeping the heat out? Not really, no. And I can't turn my fan on because it's uh, too noisy. So Yeah, same same problem here. Um, let's kick off with some transfer chat, guys. Um, United have been have been busy and active in the last week or so. Christian Eriksen has signed uh, for the club. It's a year after he collapsed um, and lost his life for a few seconds on the pitch during the European Championships. I think Lissandro Martinez, that deal was going to be wrapped up this week. And the ever-going Frankie de Jong saga continues, although he has joined Barcelona's tour. So a little bit awkward uh, there. Um, Nick Bowles asks, now that Ronaldo has seemingly been rejected by a fair few teams, what do you think he will do? Try and negotiate a pay cut with the top team, stay at United on his huge salary, uh, or miss out on the Champions League and go somewhere else like China for a massive payday. Uh, Lucy, many of the Man United supporters that I hear <clears throat> and know seem to be split. Half of them seem to be saying, look, if he wants to go, get rid, let's move on. The other half seem to be saying, look, he's our only guaranteed goal threat, so we can't let him go. Um, if you were United, would you be trying to ease him out the door? Or do you think Ten Hag, you know, goal scorers who guarantee goals are, are very rare. Would you be trying to make it work and asking him to, you know, to, 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 to stay? Yeah, I, I think that Ten Hag, if he'd have wanted him to stay, then he'd be staying. He obviously doesn't fit into the way that Ten Hag wants to play. But it's so difficult, like Barry says, when a player's got an ego like that. What I would say is that surely he would have got something sorted before going so public. You would think that he would have already... Well, I'm sure lots of conversations have gone on, so I'm surprised you know, that, that he's surprised that nobody wants him because surely he's got that big an ego that he would make sure that he knows what's going on before it even starts. But I like Ronaldo. I think that Man United fans that sort of talk about, oh, just get rid, you're getting rid of a lot of goals and, and they really need to sort of be playing in a certain way, a new style next season where they are producing opportunities to score. But who's going to score those? I mean... You know, it's, it's a difficult one. I can imagine that they are split, um, but I can also see that Ronaldo knows what is, is going to happen. I can't think for a minute that he's sat thinking, I don't know what I'm doing next. Uh, Max asks, not that one, please tell me, or he says, please tell me how you're 110% confident Man United are going to finish outside the top four. It will ease my mind. Um, Nick, let me ask you, they're, they're doing some good business. If They've got Ericsson in the door. They've got a very, very competent left back uh, signed up as well. If the young deal does get done, and they can maybe hang on to Ronaldo. Can you put forward a reason as to why they can't get top four? If we assume that City and Liverpool are bankers for top four, what is the reason why United can't usurp the likes of Spurs, Chelsea and Arsenal to, to get in that top four? Well, the reason would be that even with those three or four very, you know, very talented new players you just mentioned, they've, they've still got the rump of a squad that's failed miserably and, and been absolutely derelict in the way they've gone about their jobs for much of the last few years. It's difficult with United, isn't it? Because you feel for so long that a lot of their transfer business and general business has been sort of throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what will stick. And now we see Ten Hag in charge, who, you know, has clearly been appointed with a notional view to the long term and to giving them a style and an identity and a plan that they haven't had for a long time. And on paper, these are signings that should work. He's he's known Martinez for quite a long time, of course, so I don't think he fancies him so much as, as a guy pushing it into midfield, as, as some people have said. I think he sees him squarely as a, a defender. Ericsson 
needs little um, introduction and suits the sort of Dutch influence style of play from his time at Ajax. De Jong we all know about as well, although De Jong, as I think we know, is is very reluctant to leave Barcelona, which is the sort of club that he'd, he'd always wanted um, to play for. Now, on paper, these all fit into a strategy and a style, but is, is that going to be enough to put together in a short space of time around a core of players who have not delivered for a long time? It's very difficult. And of course, I mean, the biggest issues at Manchester United for so many years have not just been with the guy who picks the team. The whole club is, is, is dysfunctional and it has not been well led from the top. So that is not a way of saying I'm 110% sure of anything. <laughs> this could work well for them, but I just think there is such a legacy of monumental failure there in the last few years. It may take more than two or three decent acquisitions to turn it around in the short term. I don't know if that's too harsh, but that's that's my view. And let's move on to Chelsea now. They've been busy as well. Um, they've wrapped up the signing of Napoli's defender, Kaladu Koulibaly. Um, they're now linked with Kimpembe from Paris Saint-Germain. I'm not sure that's a good transfer at all. Not a fan of Kimpembe in any um, in any way at all, but they need defenders. Um, Barry, how, let's start with Koulibaly first of all. He's been touted about a move to the Premier League now for the last 74 years. He finally now is in the Premier League. Um, you know, how big a deal for Chelsea is, is that? Well, it's like any deal. It's a big deal if it works out. It may or may not. You know, securing the transfer is only half the battle. We see lots of big names come to the Premier League and fans get very excited about the arrival and, and rightfully so because they are big name players with good pedigree. But yeah, it's it's like any any transfer. It's The boring answer is we'll have to wait and see. Indeed, we will. Chelsea are on pre-season tour of America at the moment. And Golo Kante and Ruben Loftus-Cheek, they've missed the Chelsea tour because they are not double vaccinated. Uh, both Kante and Loftus-Cheek tested positive for COVID-19 at the start of last season. Um, Nick, let me ask you, what can Chelsea and, and clubs indeed do about this situation? Because Chelsea, as several other clubs, are in Europe. If we are expecting a spike and a rise in COVID cases across Europe during the winter... I mean, Chelsea as an employer can't force players to to travel if they don't want to, if they don't, sorry, to take the vaccination if they don't want to take it. But at the same time, if those employees can't do their job because of this, the decision they've made, where does this leave football clubs in terms of, I don't know, their rights and, and what they can do to ensure that, you know, they, they get the best from their players in a very, very difficult and awkward situation? From a sort of legal NHR perspective, the answer is I'm not sure. But from a sort of ethical and professional perspective, I I, I think you have to to do everything you can to persuade them um, them to get jabbed, especially if, as you say, there's going to be a wave coming up in the winter, which looks pretty certain. You have to do what is the right thing by their health, the squad's health, and by public health, given that these guys spend so much time when they are working, travelling around Europe and travelling around the world. So. I, I see no problem with the stance that has been taken. I, I know some people think it might be draconian, but I think this is is a job where where you are all the time on airplanes, in airports, travelling about in in public places. Um, and I think football, you know, should set out its stall and set an example in that regard. 2-1 win for Chelsea in America versus Club America. A couple of goals from Werner and Mount there. Sterling didn't make uh, the squad. Um, some Many thought this was going to be his 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 
coming out, his debut performance for his new club. Um, but Kennedy and Gallagher did play a role. Um, and Batshuayi, who I was surprised, is still there playing for Chelsea Football Club. Um, Jordan, you mentioned Kennedy there, and I've, I've just checked, and he turns 27 this season. <laughs> and you, and you, think he's, you think he's still 19 because he's... he's been out on loan so long but he'll be he'll be do a testimonial soon it just it's just <laughs> one of those absolute absolute meteorite moments that hits you about a player that he's just not a young prospect anymore and still playing for them he'll be do a testimonial i i completely forgotten he was still at chelsea i, I honestly didn't realize that there you go well, if there's time, we've got a game later on in the pod where we're going to be testing your knowledge of where players in the world who you might have forgotten about, where they currently are playing. Because, yeah, I had no idea Kennedy was still there. Um, so from number nines, uh, or lack of them at Chelsea, to a number nine at my mob, Arsenal, Gabriel Jesus has scored, or Jesus, as I was told it's pronounced, has scored again for Arsenal, a couple of goals um, in pre-season, a couple of games for, for, for the Gunners. Um, but it seems to be a pipeline, Barry, being built from the Etihad to the Emirates between Arsenal and Manchester City of players that are going to be just going from the north to the south there. Um, uh, Zinchenko, the latest one that we think will be making the move down south to, to Arsenal. Jim Henson asks, 35 million feels a lot for Zinchenko, doesn't it, Barry? But I will add to that question and just ask, do, do you think that this is going to be a good signing for Arsenal? Because... I, I'm assuming it'll be used as a midfielder and I'm not convinced that as a midfielder that is a summer signing that's going to really make the difference to kind of get back into that top four race. Um, I, I just don't know whether he'd be a good signer. I, I don't think I've seen him play as a midfielder. Um, I think he's a decent enough left back. I think the most telling thing about these transfers is how confident Manchester City seem that Arsenal are in no way a threat and are happy to send them their cast-offs. Um, that's low, that's low what blow, I'd Barry. read into low it. Blow, if, low blow, Barry, but I hear no, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a fact. They, if, if they considered Arsenal any sort of threat to their, their title aspirations, you one imagines they wouldn't sell them these players. So that I think it speaks volumes for City and it speaks volumes for Arsenal as well. Do you know what? I, I think Zinchenko is a very, very good player. I, I say if, if Arsenal can land him, he could play in a number of positions. He could play left back. He could play left back and like that, the, the inverted way that, that um, Arteta might want to play as well, similar to Man City. We've seen him for Ukraine play in central midfield on the left and he was excellent there. And he also can play uh, left-sided forward as well. So I think if they can, if Arsenal can land him, that's a, he's a proper player. I completely agree with Lucy on that. I think it'd be an outstanding signing. I, a lot will depend in terms of getting that deal over the line, I think, on him being given the guarantees that he'll get a go in midfield, which is going to be a bit more likely if Arteta keep, keeps moving towards more of a 4-3-3 as he, as he has been towards the end of, of last season. So I think that will be very focal to the negotiations. But I, rem I remember being in at... Um, I was covering Euro 2016, and I, I think I ended up at... Um, Ukraine, I think I think they're playing Northern Ireland in Lyon, and I'd never heard of this kid who who was running the midfield and playing for Ufa in Russia at, at the time, and he pitches up at City a few weeks later. But he absolutely ran the show. He was he was absolutely masterful. Now, obviously, Guardiola's seen a use for him in the squad in the role that he's ended up playing there. 
But then you, you, you go again to his Ukraine performances, as, as Lucy mentioned. I was, I was at their game with um, Scotland at Hampden a few weeks ago, and his performance there, admittedly against opposition who weren't firing very well, was one of the most astonishingly dynamic and technically proficient that I've seen in a really long time. And I think he's a player who's grown a lot in the last few years, clearly wants to play in midfield. I think it's time he got given that chance. And I think it's um, it's, um, it's very interesting, especially when, when you put him in an international game context now, because everyone at City, whoever you are, even if you're about to be palmed off to Arsenal because they're not a threat or, or whatever, is so technically on a different level that they stand out on pretty much any football pitch. And I, um, and I think if you put Zinchenko in, in the Arsenal team, hopefully in midfield, he would really stand out and make a difference. I hope it's a deal they can do as somebody who covers them a lot. But I think he will need some some guarantees. And obviously, they've got a lot of senior players in that midfield still. I'm sold. You've changed my mind, Nick. I'm in. I'm in. Great signing. Bring it on. Let's go, Zinchenko. We're going to win the league. Let's do it. Um, I've got a question here from Justin Engelbrink. I pronounced that correctly. Um, interested in what's going on with City. Lots of outgoings. And if City also joins Barcelona, surely something big is going to happen. Um, let me come to you, Lucy. Um, Calvin Phillips, who I know is your BFF, he has signed for Manchester City this summer. I'm assuming you'll think that's a really good signing, but it's been slightly criticised in that people are saying he's not going to get that many games but City play a lot of games. So I, I don't understand why people feel it is a is a bad move. And what has he said to you, if at all, about why his, his motivations for moving to Manchester City, what they, what those were? Well, he he sort of came on leaps and bounds with um, Bielsa at Leeds. And, and I know that Guardiola, his sort of cites Bielsa as his coaching guru. So in terms of the obvious move would be Manchester City. Now, this is a kid who finds his way, right? So I guarantee that he will find his way at, at Manchester City. And in that, I mean that he will, he takes things on really quickly. Obviously, Guardiola is going to be completely another level, playing with better players and learning from some of the best players. Rodri in that position, who's, who's probably one of the best defensive midfielders in the world right now. And he will make sure that he learns and I just think that it's a, it's a great move for him. Obviously, financially, it's a very good move. But I think he could have probably gone somewhere else and earned just as much money or even more money. But I think it's about how they play. Obviously, positionally, he's very good. Passing range is excellent. And I think that, you know, in a in a lead side that struggled he, when he wasn't there, when he was back and when he was sort of firing, that that's when Leeds were performing well. So I think that he is a, a perfect pet player for me and I think that he will get plenty of minutes he is obviously being primed as being the the taking over from Rodri over the next few seasons whether it's whether it's this season or next season you know this is a obviously a long-term contract tracked and something that is obviously developing and he, he finds a way that's all I can say is that, that the kid finds a way and that, that he's come from a sort of background and had to fight his way into professional football didn't didn't arrive at academy in, until he was 15 and then so had to find his way from there. He's not featured much in the England setup since last year's Euros. Do you think this move actually will help or hinder his chances of making Southgate's World Cup squad? Hopefully it'll help. Um, I mean, he, he he wasn't that convincing when, when he did play in the Nations League recently. Much, much the same as, as a lot of the 
and with the England players at the end of a, of a long, tough season. Obviously, I, I think he had a few injury problems as well, didn't he, last season, which might not have helped. Um, I think when you're around, again, as we sort of referenced earlier with Zinchenko, a, a city squad where everyone is at such a high technical and tactical level, your game is going to blossom and improve and that's going to stand out and I think it's going to help his England chances. I mean, if, if he if he bombs, which I think is very unlikely and barely gets a game for City, that's another matter. But I think this move is a very good one for him and a great one for England too. Yeah, I, I'd say, barring injury, and he, he did miss a huge portion of last season through injury, um, I, I think. <laughs> last season seems so long ago now. <laughs> but, um, no, he was out. He was sidelined for a long, long time. Uh, both him and Bamford, which led to all sorts of problems for Leeds. I, I think it'd be a certainty to be in the England squad. And, and, you know, Southgate is loyal to his players, even if they're playing badly, as we've seen. And I, I see no reason why he would suddenly start playing badly. I think he's an absolutely terrific player. He also seems like a really nice bloke and a good fella to have around the place, you know, just for... He's been brought up well, Baz, that's why. Oh, has he? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's go around the rest of Europe now. Matthias De Ligt has signed for Bayern Munich for uh, just under £70 million, whereas Lewandowski has signed for Barcelona for reported £42.5 million for a reunion with uh, Aubameyang. Um, I don't know if I should be excited about that front line or a little bit mere about it. I mean, they're two of the best finishers in world football still, clearly, but, you know, they're, they're no spring chickens. Should I be excited by that? <laughs> It's it's more of a sort of transfer transfer policy that you'd associate with Real Madrid of times gone by than Barcelona, isn't it? Is they they're sort of tramming the names in, and you're not totally sure how it'll work at this point. Although I I, I think Rafinha will, will be good for them, but it's 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 again a bit sort of throw throw the money that you do or in their case maybe don't have at it and see what happens. It's it's a very curious um, state of affairs, and I think it's also interesting how like. Nobody connected to Bayern seems to be mourning um, never do much either. I, that's kind of ended on a slightly sourish note after everything that, that, um, that he did for them. It's sort of, you know, not ended in the sort of high that, that they might have done. Uh, Philippe Auclair was brilliant on the last pod um, explaining why Barca are, are able to, or how they're able to make all the transfers they're making. So a lot of people are kind of just, their heads are exploding, wondering how they're able to do all this business with with no money, apparently. Um, so check out that podcast if you want to uh, want to hear how they're doing, what they're doing. Um, Lucy, I really despised when people say, or the kind of saying, so-and-so club won the transfer window or so-and-so's winning. I, I just hate it. But who at this stage here do you think has done really good business and is set up to fulfil their, their incoming season targets? Um, I'm quite impressed with Spurs, but I I am impressed with Conte anyway. I think that it it was only a matter of time before he got his claws into what was going on, and he obviously affected the way that they played. It took a while, like turning an oil tanker last season, but Richarlison I quite like as as a signing. Basuma from Brighton. You know, he's got something about him, you know, in possession. I've watched him a few times at Brighton and he and he just looks looks a really good prospect centre midfield. You know, I, I, 
Perisic did 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 um, Inter a couple of times last season, and even though he's a, as an older player, I, I think it, I think the classification of older player now is a little bit different in terms of the, the, how the high level of fitness that these players keep themselves at, and they obviously do. You know, like Lewandowski, he's I think he's thirty four, and you know he he looks sort of five or six years younger and plays similar similar sort of stats, but. You know that when you sort of sign in the older players, I think you still got two or three seasons left in them at that level. Particularly when you've got big squads. I tell you what, that from the women's Euros is some of the five subs is going to have a massive play this this season because I tell you what, by the end of these games, my sheet of paper with all the teams on it looks horrific. It's look this this sort of fifteen different names all over the place because and it disrupts. It disrupts it. It can be used as a time-wasting ta- tactic. It can disrupt. So I think that that, along with the bigger squads and the five subs, just means that um, you know it'll be a little bit of a different look in the Premier League. But I do like the, the business that Spurs are doing, and, and I do like Conte. Uh, Tim asked before we wrap up this part, what is your wildest prediction for the forthcoming season? I know you will have a few up your sleeve. Um, and Barca Jim asks, what team would you take particular joy if they started the season horrifically and ultimately relegated? Now, I want, he, he wants me to say Aston Villa. But on the first question, guys, um, I'll give you mine in a moment. But is there a particularly outlandish prediction or statement that you, you think, yep, yeah, that's going to happen. I can see that happening that maybe other people aren't talking about. Well, I think uh, we did this on a previous podcast. I can't remember if it was a live show or an actual podcast. I think it was an actual podcast. But I was the the only I'm the only person from that there, and in that I my outlandish prediction was for Liverpool to struggle and possibly finish outside the top four. But I I spec I can't specify enough that is an outlandish prediction. Now that's uh, it's interesting because that is probably the one that leaps out to me, much as I don't know if I believe it or not. But it's certainly the thing that could happen given given their remodeled front line and you know I I don't think we can underestimate how big a loss Mane is as well and, and we don't know how quickly Darwin and Darwin Nunes much as I think he's physically very good will will adapt to the Premier League so I, I, I'd go along with um, with Baz on that but that doesn't mean I think it will happen um, I'd, I'd add mine that I think Arsenal could, could finish in the Champions League easily now Interesting Lucy do you have an outlandish outrageous prediction for the season no I, I, maybe not outlandish but I think that Fulham and Nottingham Forest will be okay I think they'll be comfortably at mid-table which means that, that that a couple of teams that think that they're going to be alright will be dragged down a little bit like Leeds were last season not expected to because it always happens a team that's not expected to be around the bottom three then get the shock of the lives in the last sort of few games like Leeds did last season and having to win Le- Leeds had that difficult second season last season and we're very lucky to stay up in the end does anyone foresee that happening to say Brentford I've got Southampton to go down uh, they're my that's my first my outlandish one I think they're going to go I think we've seen with Bournemouth and Burnley if you're not moving forward it's only a matter of time before you get caught on that airport escalator that's flat but going backwards um and, and I, I don't I don't know what they're about Southampton so I, I've got them in my bottom three to go um this season it's, it's interesting with Brentford because they were in absolute nosedive, three fall before Ericsson turned up there, and they they were probably going down. I I, I think they were much as you know we we all wrote 
blowing how they did it pieces about Brentford after nine or ten games. After 20, 20 games, they they were probably going down. Twenty five games. Now that now that now, now they've lost their Ericsson, you've got to think they need somebody in of a similar, well, similar influence or to mould things accordingly. And I haven't seen that yet in their new signings. But the thing with Brentford is that you can't ever really write them off because they're so smartly run from top to bottom that they normally find something. But yeah, I think that's an alarm bell now that Ericsson's gone. I've also got um, Spurs finishing second as my outlandish um, prediction. I've, I've Half the reasons because of what you both just said about Liverpool. I've got a weird feeling about Liverpool this season. But I just think, and I know it might sound like a bit hyperbole, and I take no joy as an Arsenal fan saying this, I, I, I think Conte is going to really push Liverpool this season. And I've, if I'm going to put my cojones on the table, I'm going to go Spurs to finish second this season. Um, so when they finish eighth, I will take equal joy, but also embarrassment at that prediction uh, at the same time as well. That wraps up our transfer chat. Women's Euros coming up next. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food food, and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED, or your travel advisor. Okay, we're going to get to the women's Euros very shortly, um, but just something that came in, a message from Mikey from Washington. Uh, Max and Barry, I flew from Washington, D.C. to London to see the live show, the Hackney Empire, and also so my kids could see their grandparents, but we needn't dwell on that. But despite having dodged COVID for two and a half years, I promptly caught it three days after arriving on Tory Plague Island. And so my ticket's were unused. The live stream was terrific, but scant consolation for missing the opportunity to buy Jonathan or Nikki a pint. Max, you're right. DC is lovely. It's been my home for the last 10 years and it's a beautiful, vibrant, diverse, football-loving city. Barry, you're missing out by not having visited. I hope you'll bring a live show here soon. I promise we'll show you a good time. Sold, Barry? Yeah, I'm I'm sorry you missed the show. I I was briefly concerned that Max and I were his kids' grandparents. That's the way he phrased that. <laughs> uh, something, something you want to tell us, Barry? Uh, no. no. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm unaware that I have any grandchildren in Washington. Uh, the only place in America I've ever been is Las Vegas, which doesn't really count because that you might as well be on a different planet. Um, and America is somewhere I'd love to visit at some point. 
a big shout out to everyone who managed to get to the live show. Um, I actually was on the Birmingham leg. That was a lot of fun. Um, and I'm such a fanboy. I came to one of the London legs as well to see pretty much the exact same show for the second time. But I loved it nevertheless. Shout out to all those who liked and shared our video on Twitter with Max slapping a chair. Sean asks, how much fun was it making the video? Um, I was there, but I'll defer to you, Barry, because you were the star of the video um, in, in many senses. Well, I think Max was the undisputed star. <laughs> we were just... A support cast, but yeah, it was good fun, although it was very tiring. I had to do uh, what I believe is known in dancing parlance as a slut drop. Uh, <laughs> approximately 20 times Multiple in two times. hours. <laughs> and by the end of it, I'm not particularly fish, to say the least. Uh, I, my, it's the first time in my adult life I became aware of the fact that I actually have hamstrings. Um <laughs> Yeah, uh, doing doing the old slut drop. But yeah, it was good fun. We, I, I borrowed a pub for a morning, one Tuesday morning, and we all rocked up. And uh, I I was trying to explain to my land, the, the pub landlady why what we were filming, and she just went, I don't care. Just <laughs> pay for anything you drink and leave the pub as you found it. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it took about two hours. Max claims he didn't do any rehearsals. I, I'm not bollocks. having that. Oh, Absolute bollocks. <laughs> In his kitchen, seriously. Now, you look like me, Barry, which is slightly worrying. Don't know which one for me or you. But he's, Max definitely was practicing. Yeah. He, he nailed it. And for anyone who doesn't know, obviously, this is we, our remake of um, the the guy in the hot pants and the stripy shirt um, slapping a stool while dancing in a pub in Middlesbrough. And I think it was our attention to detail which has, has made it so far. We had horse racing on in the background like they had. We had a golden gift bag in the foreground like they had and some empty gin uh you know those big glasses of pink gin with the fruit in them so uh yeah i'm glad everyone liked it it's a bit of fun i love max's commitment to it as well he really really went in with it and i i respect him even more so for that so um, if you haven't seen it go check out max's twitter page um it's gone pretty much viral let's get to a million a million views um uh yeah it's, it's it was a lot of fun uh, to do and to watch Okay, we're questioning from Han Solo, who asks, what would be the funniest way for the Lionesses to crash out the tournament? A bit harsh. Following the tradition of English men's team, the fact I'm a Norwegian is not at all the basis for this question. Um, I'm going to come to you, Lucy. Um, it's been a, a fantastic start, group stage phase for England. Three wins, no goals conceded, and some big score lines in there as well. The latest one on Friday night, beating Northern Ireland 5-0. Um, just for the first question, what have you made of England's three games generally, first of all? Um, and where are they? How good are they looking in terms of being the prime candidates for, for champions? Yeah, well, I, I mean, coming into the tournament, they were one of the favourites. But, you know, us in this country, we, we don't like to sort of say that, even though we sort of know how good they could have been. But that I think, and I said before the tournament, that they struggled in the World Cup in 2019 with the increased attention on, we've always wanted increased attention, but quite a lot of the media attention in the years that, that I've been covering England since sort of like 2005 has been cheerleading because the women's game has needed that. It's needed a, a leg up. But in, since 2015, all of a sudden there's better media attention 
uh, top quality media attention, which means then there's criticism, you know, there's constructive criticism when somebody doesn't play well. And I think that the girls struggle with that in 2019, some of them. But I think Serena Wiegmann, the level that she's at, she's won it. She's won it in a home nation. She won it with the Dutch in 2017. Dutch were nowhere near going to be winning that, but she harnessed everything around being the host nation. And to be fair, that's what England have done so far. Um, they've got the players. We've always, we've always, the last few years, we've always had the players. We've got some young players coming through as well, which obviously helps a lot of experience. But Wiegmann is, is the reason. She's ruthless. She doesn't care who you are. She just picks a team and she gives clear instructions and all the girls play like it's the first cap and that tells you everything. They run around like it's the first cap and that is the environment that she's created. So all of a sudden now you're in a position where people are getting a little bit excited. We could, we should win it. Don't get me wrong, we should win it. But that doesn't mean to say that we, w- we will win it, but we should win it. Lucy, I, I find it interesting there what you say about the... Uh cheerleading up until 2019 and then players started becoming the subject of criticism and the struggle to deal with it because I, I'm, i as an Irishman, sort of naturally predisposed to wanting England to lose. Um, but I was happy to make an exception for the women's team. Um, but I just find the absolutely relentless cheerleading of those players, it's, it's, I'm just, it's wearing me down. Now, I know they haven't really put a foot wrong in this tournament, so they shouldn't be the subject of criticism, but I, I, I don't see any criticism whatsoever of anyone's performances. Yeah. Well, I, that, I think the criticism in 2019 came when they didn't get where they should have got. But was that not criticism of the manager rather than the players? Do you know what, Barry? What it is is that, that women's footballers have been desperate to to get the level of attention that that they think that they deserve. Okay, now they're at the level at the top level, so they do get that, right? I think in two thousand and nineteen, it was like, oh, well, you didn't play well, and they actually, in, on, you know, it's like on Twitter. If I was in the England team, I wouldn't be nowhere near Twitter during the tournament because you know some some bloke who kicks a ball like Jake Paul tells you that you're rubbish. I, I know what you mean about cheerleading. I think because they played well, but I think the first time, let's hope it's it's it doesn't happen in this tournament. But the first time that they lose, some of the girls have admitted that after 2019, and I think mentally they're a little bit they're a little bit screwed down. Sorry, just to be clear, I mean media criticism as opposed to yes. some Johnny in his basement, his mum's box room or basement, you know, making the get back in the kitchen love comments on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it, it it has changed. It has changed over the years. It used to just be, you know, trying to drag the the, the women's game forward because obviously it's struggled uh, for, for years. But I think now we've got a team that we can truly look at and think, well, actually, we could win this. But I think, like you say, Barry, with the with the media getting on the the bandwagon with that, that could come to an abrupt halt. I hope it doesn't. But there you go. Uh, uh, Nick, let me ask you, what have you made of the general um, attention uh, that the Euros has been having in this country? I mean, it's unfortunate that it's kicked off because I was meant to go to Manchester for the opening game, England versus Austria, and I got stood down because the the government was imploding. So it's happening at a time when there's a big story happening beyond sport at the moment here in the UK. But what have you made of how people generally have taken to this tournament? Um, and, And, you know, to be fair, even with the men's game, 
the, the, the knockout phase is where it really starts to kind of ramp up and people start to kind of jump on it and, and start to show a bit more interest. Yeah, and I um, I think it's still in a place where where you do need England to be doing particularly well for um, for the wider public here to 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 get massively on board. I think that is just where we're at. Um, it's quite interesting because I I did feel if I'm talking totally random anecdotal straw polls of people that I know at the start of a tournament or just before it started, I I would say there wasn't much chat about this at all, to be honest. And I and I, I was thinking, is, has the marketing been right? Have there been enough billboards showing the players and that kind of thing? And, and arguably, I don't think they necessarily were. Um, but then, as it's gone on, and as England have rattled the goals in, you know, I've, I've, I covered Northern Ireland versus Austria uh, exactly a week ago, which was very much second billing to the England game that day. And I was in my hotel in Southampton that night and I just got in at half time. So I missed six goals for England, obviously. And I, I looked at my phone and on several WhatsApp groups, people were like, oh, what's this? Wow, wow, look at that. And and nobody had really said much um, of a word in the previous week or so. And that's kind of continued in, in the last three or four days. I, I think people are talking about it more. There's more of a groundswell. People commenting on the other games as well once again this is totally anecdotal for me and my small circle um i think the better england do the more people are swept along i think you get that in any major tournament anyway but i think in this particular tournament i, I do think it's important to have that lasting legacy of sort of feel good around it to to get the engagement i don't know if that's fair or not uh, Lucy, I appreciate that Spain are one of the best teams in the world. They're a, they're a brilliant team and could could beat England. But in England, if they are supposed to be one of the two favourites to win this whole competition, if they were to lose this quarterfinal match, how disappointing would that be? And how would that be viewed as a campaign? I, again, I'll caveat that they'd be getting beaten by one of their best teams in the world, but they would still be losing at the quarterfinal stages of a home tournament. How, how would that be seen afterwards if they weren't to progress to the semis? It, it'd be a disaster, to be honest, because it, pe people uh, talk about Spain, but th there's a majority of the players play for Barcelona, but the front three for Barcelona, they're, they're not Spanish, okay? So it means that the girls play different. Yes, they keep it, but that final third, they're really, really struggling. Like I say, I've done all three of their group games, and in the first game, they, they did okay. They scored, actually, uh, three headers and a, and, a, and a penalty, which is unheard of for Spain, from the play, they score from set pieces. The view of them is slightly skewed by people thinking it's Barcelona and Barcelona got 90-odd thousand when they, they won the Champions League last not last season, season before. And that is not how it is. Spain are pretty young when it comes to tournament football. So if England don't beat Spain, there's a problem. As I mentioned, uh, Northern Ireland, unfortunately, will be heading home. They are the lowest ranked team uh, in this competition, 5-0 losers to England. Um, I think it was the first Alicia Russo goal was absolutely beautiful. The turn for that goal was 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 stunning. I really enjoyed some of the goals in that particular game. Uh, elsewhere, Germany topped their group uh, in flawless style, winning all three of their games, scoring nine goals, conceding zero, including a 2-0 win over England's quarterfinal rivals, Spain. Um, just finally on, on the pitch, uh, Lucy, you, you mentioned earlier on kind of how good Germany are. If England were to beat Spain, is it only Germany that could stop England from going all the way? No, Sweden are, Sweden are now in their path and Sweden were my pre-tournament bet because Sweden came, they're consistently very, very good. They've got a great mix of really experienced players who've got 
you know, sort of 200, 150 caps plus, and then younger ones as well. And they are ominously getting better as the group games have, have, have progressed. So Sweden are a problem. France, having said that, France, um, they have lost their striker, Katoto, who is an absolute goal machine. She's got a, a, an ACL. She did her ACL the other day. And after she went off, they struggled against Belgium. I did that game as well. And so France may not be as strong as, and they tend to get worse as the tournament tournaments progress as well, France. So Germany and Sweden, I think, will be a problem for England. Uh, just finally, uh, Lucy, on the Euros, I mean, I saw Ailey Barber, the BBC presenter uh, during the coverage, flag the lack of diversity we're seeing in this England women's team. I noticed when the squad was announced a few weeks back, um, there were only three, uh, there, there were two mixed race girls and one black girl in the squad. The three games so far, we've not seen any of those players touch the field yet. And I'm not, I'm not insinuating at all they should be playing because they're black. But how big an issue do you think it is in terms of representation um, that we're talking about girls being inspired by watching this England women's team, yet there are many girls, do I know for a fact, play at grassroots level that won't see that representation in the in the senior team. And it's ironic that a year a year ago today, I think it was, maybe a week ago, we were lauding the men's team for the exact opposite, being one of the most diverse England teams of all time. In terms of legacy, what work needs to be done? I appreciate we're halfway through a tournament, so maybe it's not the best time to be asking this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What work needs to be done to ensure that the women's game kicks on and is representative of all girls that want to play this sport? Yeah, I mean, it, do, it does need to be because we're trying to inspire every single young girl in this this country to be able to look and think that that could be me. I think in the in the FA's rush to try and progress women's football, access is is, is a problem. And I worked at, at Leeds for years and, and our academy was in Weatherby, which if anybody knows Leeds is miles away from Leeds City Centre. And the access to a lot of the communities around Leeds was virtually nil because you had to get two or three buses. And I think that's the problem women's football has. So these centre these centre of excellences and you know the the areas that clubs operated for young people weren't in the places where it was accessible to all. And that is that has then meant that it's manifested itself in you know some of the WSL players. It, it's not representative of of the communities that they serve. So I think the FA, I think they've been questioned. There was a the BBC documentary that Alex Scott did, which was very good, which covered quite a range of, of topics in women's football. They asked the question of the FA, I think it was Kelly Simmons at the, at the FA, and I know that they're looking at that because it's just like there's so much talent out there. It's it's crazy. So now we've sort of pushed the, the England women's team forward. The WSL is now professional. Now we've got to think we need the players playing, and that's the problem. You know, it's all right, but, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of making these leagues professional, but we have to have the players coming up behind. And I think that's what the FA are concentrating on now and making sure that, that everybody who wants to play who sees these girls um, can get themselves in a local team and then have the access to sort of WSL and championship championship clubs. But yeah, it's a problem. Absolutely. Uh, for your feel on all things women's football, don't forget to check out the Women's Football Weekly. Uh, just check check it out wherever you get your uh, podcasts and it'll be on the feed and you will get your updates there and then. Okay, um, next section we'll be going for AOB and possibly some Aston Villa chat. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. 
Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Okay, so on the final part of the pod here, we're going to go through some of the questions and things that we're going to wrap up beyond transfers and the women's Euros. Um, Kelly on Twitter says, so Villa, and that's it. Uh, Aston Villa fans, they're having an absolute ball down under in Australia. They're having their pre-season tour and they took on Leeds, beat them 1-0. There was a double save from the penalty from Philip Coutinho. The first one was saved by Ilya Mezier and the second uh, shot from Coutinho was also saved. Um, Tom Leake asked, thoughts on John McGinn trying to end a child's career in a friendly? I don't know if you guys have seen this. Uh, during the game, John McGinn, who I happen to think is actually massively overrated, um, hospitalised a 16-year-old Archie Gray with a challenge. It's on YouTube. You can see it. It's a really, really uh, horrible challenge, which... I just thought was disgraceful in any game, let alone a pre-season, pre-season game. Um, he needs to sort that out. Um, Archie Gray, he's he's played league, like competitive senior football. I for think league, he played some he? games the back end of last season, didn't he? Mm. Yeah, he's from the royal family of the Greys, Archie Gray, and he's not. I don't even think he's the best of the two Gray brothers that are in the academy. I think the younger one's supposed to be unbelievable, but I think that the problem that. If you see the the challenge, it's a poor, poor challenge where he sort of goes in and turns at the same time, John McGinn. And I, I mean, I, I, to be honest, it, the referee didn't help because the referee didn't pull any fouls up right from the start. And so that it was a little bit of a free for all. But, um, you know, he's a 16 year old kid who obviously you, you he's got to learn very, very quickly that that if you I think he'd made a challenge before on Coutinho and I've seen that as well. and It's not particularly as bad. But you, you've got to know there's been a lot of occasions where I've been at Leeds where older pros who don't particularly like a, a young pup coming through just make sure that they um, leave a foot in. It happens all the time. In in training, it happens in the same team. So um, I know one player whose career completely went in the opposite direction because the day before his first team debut, he got done by a senior pro in training whose place he was taking and he got released by Leeds at the end of the uh, end of that season. So you know you've got to be so careful. But it's a it's a poor challenge. He sort of kills his body as he turns, so that he knows exactly what he's gonna he's doing. But hopefully the, the Archie's not particularly. I don't think he's broken his ankle, but I think there's some sort of ligament damage by the look of it. But yeah, not good. Well, just sorry. In slightly more, um, we spoke about our poor Archie Gray, but in slightly more heartwarming preseason friendly news, uh, Sunderland played. Dundee United and beat them 2-0 and it's worth uh, just seeking out the absolutely sensational Charlie Mulgrew own goal from that game where he he spanks a back pass into his own net from about 45 yards out Um, yeah highly amusing and one you you probably want to be getting out of the way in (laughs) pre-season 
<laughs> I'll check it out. Jose Mourinho has got a tattoo of all three of the European titles uh, marked on his, uh, his left shoulder. Um, what do you guys make of that? Is that a little bit cringe or should he be pr- proud of that? He looks like he's done it himself as well. Honestly, he looks like he's drawn them on himself. They don't look the, the highest quality from the pictures that I've seen. It looks like a prison tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> has he has, has he put the conference league on there? Yeah. Well, it, he's got he has, three yeah, trophies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. incredible. <laughs> he's yeah. gone full Clattenburg, yeah. except Clattenburgs are more tastefully done. Um, you know what he looks like? He looks like him from Coronation Street that we, that used to be on the bins that lived with Hilda and <laughs> what is he called? What was he called? Eddie Yates. <laughs> I thought it was a bit cringe, but you know, each to their own. What what you do with your body is up to you. Um, and let's wrap up with with a little bit of fun with the game here. We've got an email sent in uh, from Sean, who says, "Hello, team. I appreciate that the actual football being played at the current Euros is a time-consuming distraction to the transfer window, but I wanted to make sure that Max and Barry and Co keep up the historical levels of disinterest in transfers. Otherwise, my genius idea for a brilliant new show risks losing its unique selling point, namely your ineptitude. Here it is. It's a panel show." online to begin with, but you have to start somewhere, he says, called Where Do You Think They Are? I'm sure you're familiar with the family tree show called Who Do You Think You Are? Well, this is nothing like that. Uh, The host, uh, that'll be him until Ryan Reynolds finds out, he says, reads out the names of a footballer and you have to tell me where they are playing. Understood? I mean, it's pretty simple to to, to be fair. All right, so here we go. Let's start off with Mario Goetzer. Stuttgart? No, close though. Eintracht Frankfurt. There you go. Bang. Well done, Mr. Glenn Denning. Nicholas Bentner. He, he can't still be at um, Rosenberg, is he? <laughs> he went back to Copenhagen, didn't he? Is he still there? Is he, he is st- at Copenhagen, yes. Copenhagen. Okay. One point for Nick. Um, come on, Lucy. Come on, catch, catch up. Sorry, um, Mario. I prefer, that, I prefer that 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 one that's dead or not dead. We play with my friends when we're out. We say it's somebody famous and say whether they're dead or not. It's similar sort of thing. Dead or not dead. I love that. Um, Mario Balotelli. Oh, I I know this. He's one of the Turkish. One of the sort of not the big four Turkish clubs. Uh, something yes, a spore. Yes. yes. I'll give you that one. Adana Demiaspor. <laughs> well done. <laughs> and uh, finally, uh, Charlie Austin. Oh, Melbourne. Is it Melbourne? Close. Sydney. Brisbane Raw FC. Uh... But well done. Well done, guys. Um, I'm not sure if that game will be commissioned and signed up, uh, <laughs> Sean, but um, but we, we appreciate your time nevertheless. Feels like a good time to wrap up uh, the pod there. Um, cheers for your time, Barry. Thank you very much, Jordan. You've been a more than able deputy. I've uh, done my best. Um, thanks for your time, Nick. Thank you, Jordan. You've been an incredible deputy. Oh, you're too kind, you're too kind. And Lucy, thanks for your time as well. Thanks, everybody. You've been a right laugh. Uh, Football Weekly will be back on Thursday. Max will be back in the big chair of hosting duties. Football Weekly was produced by Silas Gray and our executive producer is Max Sanderson.
This is The Guardian. 